So here we are this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, what I want to point out is that last week, as my buddy Lance Calvert came in and he taught 1 Corinthians 15, part 1. He called it part 1 because it's 58 verses. And so you don't really want to do 58 verses in one week because it can be overwhelming. It can be a lot. But what Paul is teaching about in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection, what we sang about this morning. The resurrection is one of the most important things in our faith because as we studied last week, if Christ did not raise from the dead, then there's no resurrection and there's no life after this one. It's all over. So what we need to do is we need to look into the resurrection and say, okay, well, what does that have to do with me and how should it affect my walk with the Lord, my faith in Christ? So in a quick outline from last week in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 1 through 11, Paul explains the fact of Christ's resurrection. And he does it by explaining that it, it all happened according to the scriptures that foretold that it would happen. And then he also explains that it happened and there were witnesses. And usually in the Old Testament, they would call for two witnesses for something to be established. They wouldn't let somebody be stoned to death or be uh, put to jail or anything like that if one person said that they had done something wrong. But if there was two witnesses, obviously, that gave the same account, then it kind of established that this probably happened. But what Paul explained last week was there wasn't just one, there wasn't just two witnesses, but there was actually the 12 apostles, there was at least 500 people that Jesus appeared to after his death, burial, and his resurrection. 500! Now, you can see where this is kind of an important piece of information. Paul even goes on to say in the first 11 verses of this chapter that some of those people at the time of him writing this book to the Corinthians were still alive. So if anybody had any doubts about the resurrection, he said, hey, there was 500 people that saw it and some of them are still with us. Go talk to them. Go ask them about it. Go see what they saw and judge for yourselves whether or not it's true. We don't have that benefit today, but they had it then. He said, go and test it. Go ask the hard question and see if it, if it helps your faith. But then he also said in that first 11 verses that he was a witness as well. He used himself as an example at the very last. He said, uh, in verse 11, he said, um, excuse me. He says, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But in verse 8, he said, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Someone who was kind of after it all happened, and Jesus, for whatever reason, he condescended to appear to me, even though I persecuted his beloved people. And so Paul gives the fact of Christ's resurrection. But then in verse 12 through 19, he gives the importance of Christ's resurrection. Why does it matter? Why do we celebrate it? Why really is it more important than his birth? You know, a lot of people look at Christmas as the most important date on the Christian calendar, but really Easter is. Verse 12 through 11, I'm going to go through it real quick. He says, verse 12, Now if Christ preached, excuse me, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, he goes on to follow that reasoning out. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. If Christ didn't raise, then we're liars, is what he's saying. If you've questioned the resurrection, then you should question us because we're big fat liars if he didn't raise. If in fact the dead do not... So in verse 15, he says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And here's the end of that. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is worthless and you are still stuck in your sins. You still owe God for rebelling against him. Your, the wages of sin is death. So if Christ did not raise from the dead, he's just like every other guy before him. He died and that's it. But we talked about last week how Christ raising from the dead actually proves that God accepted his payment on our behalf for our sins. We sinned, we rebelled against God, God sent someone to live before us, to die in our place as a proxy, as it were. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And the only way that we know that God accepted his payment for our sins is that God raised him from the dead. That's the gospel. That Jesus was born, that he lived that he died on the cross. A lot of people say, if you ask them, what's the gospel? They'll say, Jesus died for my sins. No, because if he died for your sins and he's still dead, then that doesn't prove anything but that he was a man that could die. But if Jesus died for your sins, he was buried in the tomb, and then he was raised to newness of life by the hand of God, that proves that he was accepted by God that the payment was accepted and Jesus being raised from the dead is like us getting a receipt. A lot of the time you can't prove that you bought something at tax time until you turn in all your receipts. So the receipt for the payment for our sins is Jesus still being alive. I'm alive, we sang, because he lives. I will raise from the dead because he was the first fruits of those who would raise from the dead. And that's what he said in verse 12, or that's what he said in this next passage. So in verse 12 through 19, the importance of Christ's resurrection. Well, if he's talking to believers in a Christian church, why would he have to tell them all this? Well, because the church in Corinth is just like the church in our day. Unfortunately, believers believe in Jesus. They believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, but then They're way more versed in what the world thinks than what God has taught us. And so because they're way more practiced in the philosophies and the beliefs of this world, and they're enamored with them, and they start to believe them, Paul's correcting them. He says, you hang out with lots of people that believe, because in verse 12 through 19, what we need to know about their culture is that most Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They scoffed at it. They thought it was a silly idea that it was even possible. And some of the Corinthian Christians were led astray by the Greeks' doctrine, by their teaching. You know, they go to church one day a week. They go, okay, so the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead and the resurrection is true. But then you spend six days hanging out with people that don't believe that and they talk to you, and they eat away at you, and it kind of erodes your faith. And so you go, well, 
did Jesus really rise from the dead? And there are those questions that raise up, and it changes the way that we live our lives. And so Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is futile. It's worthless. And so in verse 20 through 28, he gave the order of the resurrection. He explained the fact of Christ's resurrection. He explained the importance of Christ's resurrection as it pertains to our salvation. And then he explained the order of the resurrections. I say resurrections because Jesus was the first to resurrect, and then there are those who will go after him. So in verse 20 through 28, he gives kind of a parade of resurrection. He explains it. So in verse 20, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That term means those who have died. For since by man came death, being Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ's. Do you belong to Christ? Those are the ones that will be raised from the dead in newness of life. See, he says afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, at his return, his second advent. But each one in his own order. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is not a person, it's not a kingdom, it's not a ruler, it's not a place, but the last of the enemies of God to be put to death that will be destroyed is death itself. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are under him, or in submission to him, he is, it is evident that he who put things are, excuse me, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject or submitted to him under his authority, then the Son himself also will be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. So basically what he's saying is in the rule and reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, Jesus will be the authority figure. He will be the head over all nations and he will put all authority and power and rulership under God the Father. That God may be all in all. That means that God may have the supreme authority practically. So this is the result of the resurrection. The order of the resurrections is explained. So that was last week. Verse 29 begins, and he, this section from 29 to 34, he talks about the effects that, a den that denying the resurrection will have on your life. This is important because he's got a group that are kind of waffling between, well, what do we really believe? Do we believe that Christ was raised from the dead? And if we do, what should our lifestyle look like? And if we don't, what are the results of that? What does it matter? So in verse 29 through 34, he gives that, the effects that denying the resurrection will have on your individual life, on your faith life. He says in verse 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Well, there's a lot of questions about what in the world this verse means. And uh, one of the problems with this verse is that there are those who are parts of cults 
And they kind of come alongside Christianity. They go, well, we follow Jesus too. But they don't. They're the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Mormons believe, and there were pagan uh, cults in the day of Paul that believed as well, that if someone died without faith in Christ, what they believed was, well, you can baptize somebody who's alive in their stead, and then they can go to heaven. But what the Bible teaches is that your salvation is either it's set in place while you're alive. When you take your last breath, your chance is over. There's no more opportunity for you to repent and believe in Jesus and go to heaven. And so that's a very big difference between the cults and what Christianity teaches. Baptism for the dead is a practice that was common in the, in the pagan religions of Greece, and it's still practiced today by some cults, but it doesn't change a person's sentence, their destination, their reward, or their punishment. For that is determined while you live. And if you want to take a passage that teaches that, look at Luke chapter 16 in your own time, and you'll see the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There's this big gulf between those who believe and those who do not believe. And he explains that you can't pass between that gulf once you've passed on, once you've died. And so uh, if you get a chance, check that out on your own. I don't have time this morning. But in verse 30, he says, why then are, excuse me, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord that I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, if there's no resurrection, this is the conclusion Paul comes to. He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's what King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. He said, if there's no hope, if there's no purpose in life, then we should just live it up, get all the comfort and the excitement and the partying and live it up because tomorrow we die and then there's nothing. There's no consequences. That's the, that's, the, that's the following out of the thought pattern that there's nothing after this life. But what Paul says is if the resurrection is not in fact true, if it won't happen, he says, verse 30, then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do we risk our lives to follow Jesus? Now, we may not understand that. But in Paul's day, in order to follow Christ, that meant that he was putting himself in danger of those who would be against Christ. It meant that he was putting his hat in the ring. He was fighting on the side of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then he was risking himself for an empty faith. He says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Now, Christians were persecuted, and one of the things that they would do is they would punish them. They would, instead of, you know, they would say, well, I'm not going to worship Caesar because I only worship Jesus. And because of that, they would say, okay, well, then we're going to have you tortured until you change your mind. And many times that torture would go so far, there was, okay, well, we're going to feed you to the lions. Look at Daniel. Daniel, because he would not worship other gods, he was thrown to the lions. He was risking his life to believe in Jesus Christ and to follow him with his life. It was his confession. But Paul says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. I have taken up my cross and I'm following Jesus. That means I'm no longer my own, but I live to do the will of God. 
And if I'm living every day, I'm laying aside my own ideas and my own hobbies and my own thoughts about what life should be like so that I can live for a hope that does not disappoint. If I'm doing that every day and there's no resurrection, I may as well just give it up. It's in vain. It's worthless. We may as well just eat all the food we can, drink all that we can, live it up, buy, sell, trade, make a name for ourselves, because afterwards we're just going to die anyway. And so what he says in verse 33 is his conclusion to this. He says, do not be deceived. He's writing this to the Christians in Corinth. He says, don't be deceived. This thought pattern will not get you anywhere. It's a worthless thought pattern. He says, evil company corrupts good habits. One of my translations that I read says, bad company corrupts good morals. How many of you in here would consider, don't raise your hand, would consider yourself to have good morals? The question is, what are those morals based upon? When I went off to college, my morals, and I was a moral person in my own mind, my morals were based upon what my parents had taught me was good. And that's good. We should obey and honor our parents. But here's the deal. When my parents weren't looking, you know what I was doing? I was doing whatever my friends were doing. I was doing whatever was popular. And here's the reality. Bad company corrupted good morals because my morals were based on people that weren't standing there watching me all the time. But here's the deal. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's God with us. He calls himself Emmanuel. He's left heaven to come down here to be with us. And when he left, ascended back to the Father, he sent us the Holy Spirit who would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that there is going to be a judgment, that we will be, uh, have consequences for our sins. And so that should drive us to Christ. And then all of a sudden, we're no longer living with morals that can move, but we're living according to a standard that does not change. And in order to please a God who is always with us, not so much any longer because we have to, but because we want to. He says, bad company corrupts good habits or good morals. And what he's saying is, Corinthian church, you're living for a hope that does not disappoint. Don't listen to the people that are around you that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus because they don't know God. That's what he goes on to say. Awake to righteousness. Don't be put to sleep by the theories of this world. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. And then he says, for some do not have the knowledge of God. If you're taking counsel and wisdom from people that do not have the knowledge of God, they're going to lead you away from what he teaches. They're going to lead you away from living for a hope that doesn't disappoint. They're going to tell you to live it up for today. He says, don't be deceived. He says, I speak this to your shame. You're taking the knowledge and the wisdom of this world and you're applying it to your life those people don't have the knowledge of God. You do. You ought to know better. You ought to live for the principles that God has taught you. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? Okay, so Jesus did raise from the dead. How are the dead then raised? Explain it to me. We want to see how it's made. You know, we're, we're the culture where we, we like to see how every little thing is done. We like to see a show. Take me into the factory. I want to see how this button on my shirt is made. 
And then they show every part of the process, and you just look at that button and go, wow, that thing's seen some, some things. Somebody took a lot of time to come up with the, how to make buttons, you know. So our question, we're very inquisitive. Well, then, okay, if the resurrection is true, all right, I'll take it on faith. But don't make me check my brain at the door. This is a reasonable faith. How's it done? How does God raise us from the dead? And so Paul answers. He says, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Paul answers, he says, foolish one. Ouch. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must die to himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone would keep his life, he must first lose it. Anyone who would lose his life for my sake, he will gain it. And so what he's saying here is he says, What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. So he's going to give the example of something very simple, agriculture. He says, when you plant a garden, you take that seed and you plant that seed in the ground. Now, if you want to keep it for yourself, you want to keep that grain, that's great. But if you'll give it up and place it in the dirt, close it over, make sure it's got water, it's going to be raised up. But what's going to grow from that seed? Is it going to be more seeds? No, it's going to be a plant. And that plant will produce seed. But you don't get that plant unless that seed is sown into the ground. And he's going to say, just like that with our body, we're going to sow this thing into the ground. It's going to give up on us one day, and it's going to be planted in the ground. And then it's going to be raised up at the last trumpet call, And when it's raised up, it's going to be made a heavenly body that's going to be fit for heaven. One body's made for the world, the land that we live on, and one's going to be fit for heaven to be in the presence of God. What cannot be in the presence of God? Sin. These bodies are sinful. They're temptable. All of those things, they're corruptible. They they wear out. So we're going to have a perfected body that God's going to give us so that we can be in the presence of the Lord. And we're going to go on to see that. Verse 36, he says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. You sow something else, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed he gives its own body. What comes out of the seed, that life is released from that decaying shell And as that shell around the seed decays, then it germinates and that thing comes forth. It breaks forth from the ground. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. In other words, he's talking about the stuff we see in, this, in space. It's not made to be on earth. And the stuff that we see on earth is not made to be in space. You take an animal and you send it up to space and you let it out the space shuttle, what happens? It implodes. It can't breathe. It, it just, there's no air. And so in the same way, our bodies that we have here are not made for heaven. But he will make us a glorified body. So he goes on to compare these. He says, there's one glory 
uh, of the sun, verse 41, another glory of the moon, the celestial bodies, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So that being said, verse 42, he goes on, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Here's the comparison. The body is sown in corruption. Think about it. Our bodies, they die, we lay them in the ground, and they're corruptible. What does corruption mean? It's like rust on a car. That's corruption. Something gets in there, and then it starts to rust. And then eventually that car is no longer a car, but it's, a, it's, it's like tomato on cars. It's just falling apart. The, the fenders fall off. The, the paint doesn't stay. It just, it's corruptible. It's raised, though, in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, yet it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, verse 44, and it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. I like this because in verse 39 through 44, basically he's explaining that our bodies right now, the ones that we have, they're corruptible. The bodies that we plant in the grave, they're not bodies that we'll have when we're resurrected. I like that because mine gets worn out pretty easy. Our new bodies, instead of being natural, they'll be spiritual. Our new bodies, instead of being corruptible and wearing out, they'll be incorruptible. Our new bodies, instead of being made for earth, they'll be made for heaven. For example, the caterpillar to the butterfly. You guys ever see a caterpillar crawling along the ground? What is that caterpillar's body made for? It's made to crawl around on the ground, to grab a branch, to eat the leaves. But one day, for whatever reason, God just so happened to make the caterpillar a picture of the resurrection. Because it gets full, it gets a leaf, it starts wrapping itself, and it goes, it builds a cocoon. And if you ever open a cocoon before it's ready to be opened, do you know what you find in that cocoon? Something gooey called chrysalis. And it's just, there's nothing to it. You don't find a caterpillar, you don't find a butterfly, you find goo corruptible, right? But then, after the set amount of time, that thing opens up and it releases a caterpillar. Excuse me, a butterfly. The caterpillar goes in, turns to a goo, and then it comes out with a completely new body. Is it a butterfly's body made for crawling around on the ground? No. It's made to fly around and be beautiful. Caterpillars, not so beautiful. They're kind of ugly and gross but then they become this butterfly that's made for an entirely different scene. No longer for the terrestrial or the ground, but now for the aerial, I guess if you want to call it, to be able to fly around and look beautiful, huh? Celestial, yeah, to be in the air, to be able to fly around. And so our bodies are the same. And I love the caterpillar to the butterfly because a lot of people go, well, how in the world can you believe in something like the resurrection? It's put into the very makeup of creation. It's there. God just leaves us little sticky notes. And sometimes really sticky if you open up that caterpillar's cocoon. You know, he, he leaves these little fingerprints on creation that point to the spiritual truths that he tries to teach us in his word. And so I love the butterfly, one of the biggest preachers of the gospel, the caterpillar and the butterfly. But we're still in our caterpillar form. We're made for this life. And our bodies, they wear out. They turn to goo. 
They get messed up. And, but what I love is that when we're sown in the grave, one day we'll be raised to incorruption. Verse 44. It's a sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He's quoting from Genesis. But the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, he's our, uh, our head, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And so before I go further, I want to talk about this for a minute, because in order to inherit the kingdom of God, we must be born again. And the reality is, is that many, because of a, a misunderstanding, they see the kingdom of God and they go, okay, well, I can become a part, I can become a member. But you're not, you don't become a member of the kingdom of God. You're born into it, just like you're born into the kingdom of man. And so one is still dead spiritually in his sins, the, the, man, the fleshly man, and he's dead in his trespasses. He's separated from God. And the other has been made alive and a new creation in Christ. And we see this in John chapter 3. And I'm just going to turn there real quick because in John chapter 3, Jesus is approached by a man who was a good moral guy. He was a teacher in Israel. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was a scribe, and he understood the word of God. He had known the Old Testament from a young boy. We call this story the story of Nick at night. His name is Nicodemus, and he approached Jesus at night. So it's kind of like, you know, the TV station, Nick at night. I don't even know if that's on anymore. But what he says is, in verse 1 of chapter 3 of John, it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which just means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's recognized, we know that you're from God because nobody can do this stuff that you're doing unless God's with them. And Jesus said, nobody can see what I'm doing. Nobody can see the kingdom of God coming near unless he has been born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? See, these questions that he's asking, they seem obvious, but he's asking the hard questions. What do you mean by this, Jesus? This makes no sense. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You can imagine those around him kind of scoffing and going, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Except he asked him one-on-one. He's asking the silly questions, but he's still asking. How can a man be born again? Can he go back into his mom? And Jesus answered him. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, the means of a physical birth, think about the amniotic fluid, when a woman is getting ready to go into labor, what happens? Her water breaks, born of water. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, this, uh, the Spirit is the, 
kind of like the amniotic fluid for someone who's going to be born again. The Holy Spirit comes alongside that person and convicts them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and it prepares them for the birth, for, to be born again. Jesus said he would send the, the Holy Spirit who would lead us into all truth. And unless the Holy Spirit is the one convicting a person of their sin, they won't be convicted. You and I can come along and we can, in our best efforts, try to convince them with our head knowledge and with the words that we say that they need to have a saving relationship with Jesus. But unless the Holy Spirit does the work, our words are useless. So when you're witnessing to somebody, when you're trying to share with them they need to be saved, always pray for them more than you talk to them. Because the Lord is going to go ahead of you. He's going to send His Spirit. Just like this amniotic fluid that we're born through, the Holy Spirit will go and prepare them for spiritual birth. And we need that. That's so important. Because our words, we can't... Have you ever tried to tell somebody they need Jesus and they just look at you and they're just like, what are you talking about? It just flies over their head. Makes no sense to them. They need the Spirit of God to work on their heart and to soften them. Just like that snow we had last week on, was it Wednesday? That snow, I mean, unless the sun comes out, that stuff's going to stay there and there's going to be this hard outer crust. But when the sun comes out and melts it, it reveals everything that's underneath it. We need the Holy Spirit to melt the hearts of hardened heart individuals that do not know the Lord in order for them to have soil that's ready to receive the incorruptible seed of the word of God. So that was kind of a a segue. But he says, Do not marvel, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but it cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Paul, continuing on in this passage, he talks about in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to turn there real quick, in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Therefore, We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences." Now I'm going to go down to verse 16. He says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, look at this, second birth, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God gives us a new life source, which is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And as we have this new life source, we have a new desire to please God. We, no longer, we don't have to do it on our own. He changes our heart. And as he gives us a new heart, we're a new creation. Our heart that's been changed converts our mind and we make different decisions based on that new heart that he's given us, a heart that desires to please God. So in verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Unless a person's been born again, flesh and blood alone cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There has to be a quickening, a a spirit that's been made alive by the work of God. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He says, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is not something you can't figure out. A mystery is something you've got to kind of look into. And what he says here, we shall not all sleep. What he's telling the Corinthians is we won't all die. All believers will not die before Jesus comes back, is what he's saying. But, he says, we all shall be changed. We'll all be given glorified bodies. So the person that's dead and in the grave and waiting the resurrection, they'll be raised. They're not hanging out there bored and trying to figure out when it's going to happen. For them, when the trumpet blows, they'll be raised in life to Christ. And it'll be just like the moment they died, to be dead and absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God's outside of time. So they're not laying in the grave going, man, when's this going to happen? No. To them, it's a moment, a brief second. The twinkling of an eye is a fraction of a second. That's how quick it is. But he says we shall not all sleep. So for those of us who are still alive at the return of Christ, and we very possibly could be, he could come back at any moment. For us, we shall also be gathered up with the saints and taken into the presence of the Lord. He will take us but we shall be changed as well on the way in the twinkling of an eye. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now a note on the trumpet, verse 52. Greek scholars say that the trumpet isn't the seventh trumpet of judgment that you read in the book of Revelation, which is a whole other subject. For the construction in the Greek would have to be entirely different. This trumpet will call the church home before the tribulation is what we believe. That we will, before the great tribulation that's described after chapter 3 in Revelation, we will be taken up to be with Christ. And everything that's described after that is described of what's going on in a Christ-rejecting world where the church has been raptured. So that's just a little side note and a little food for thought. But then he says there in verse 50. Three, for this corruptible, this body that's corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Those who have died, they must put on incorruption, and this person who's still alive, say he comes back right now, my body is still susceptible to death, but my body must put on incorruption, and God does that according to his power. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, and we studied this last week in this chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. The last enemy of God, death, will be defeated. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Or in some translations it says, O Hades. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to the Lord, verse 57. Here's the hallelujah part of this chapter. But thanks be to God. Give praise to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, I know that the world's telling you that the resurrection's not true, but since it is, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be anchored to this truth. It's important. It's more important than most every other truth that you can memorize. Jesus rose from the dead. In Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 10, he says, For he who believes, he who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead 
will be saved. The resurrection is key. But what he says here is, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Everything that you do for the Lord, because he's first loved you, it's not in vain. There will be a reward for that. It's not futile. He says, therefore, hold fast. The idea is an anchor that's clamped into the ground for a boat. And that ship, no matter what waves are blowing, that boat cannot be moved. And the boat that we're in, this ark, this delivery we've received, is just like the ark that was delivered through the great flood. Noah and his family, they got on the ark and they trusted that God told them to build that ark and the tribulation and the the flood came. And who was delivered through that massive worldwide flood? God's people who said, we're going to build the boat because God said, we're going to get in the thing. And God shut the door and he delivered them through that. They lived through the world's most devastating flood. And we, in the same way, will be delivered through judgment because we're trusting in the ark of God that God sent to provision for salvation, Jesus Christ. He is the ark. He is the one who will deliver us. And not just in this life, but also for eternity. That death will not defeat us. Death doesn't stop our life. But the life that we now live is live in Jesus Christ. And he will deliver us to life eternal. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that our faith in you is not futile. It's not in vain. The fruit of a life that 